Today on Peace Talks Radio, religious liberty and tolerance are complex issues impacted by a variety of factors, including education, politics, and the media. On today's program, we'll talk with participants in a 2011 conference called Liberty and Tolerance in an Age of Religious Conflict. I guess I'm in favor of anything anybody uses to work for peace, but it seems to me a lot of people in the West have ignored the importance of the role of religion. It really animates lots of people's lives. It's the fundamental motivating force in many people's lives. Plus, we'll hear some inspirational calls for religious harmony from the 14th Dalai Lama, Desmond Tutu, Arun Gandhi, and Martin Luther King III. We must travel together as sisters and brothers on a new road, a more hopeful and healing road, a road paved with respect for diversity and undergirded with love, a road reinforced with patience, charted by the principles and practices of nonviolence. That's all today on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Whether it's the search for inner peace or learning how to resolve conflicts we have with others in our families, workplaces, communities, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. The Capital Area Tibetan Children will now present a song in celebration of His Holiness. July 6, 2011, at a Buddhist ritual event known as Kala Chakra, being held in Washington, D.C., Tenzin Yatso, the 14th Dalai Lama of Tibet, is turning 76 and is being thrown a birthday party in front of an audience of several thousand at the Verizon Center Arena. Among the well-wishers, a Hindu, who happens to be the grandson of Mahatma Gandhi, a Christian, who happens to be the son of Martin Luther King, Jr., and another Christian, an Anglican priest from South Africa, who happens to be Nobel Peace Prize winner Desmond Tutu. Your Holiness, a very happy birthday from your friend in Cape Town. Perhaps one day soon we will have the opportunity to sit on my front porch a couple of retirees sipping rooibos tea and telling stories to the youngsters. Until then, God bless you. And God bless you all on this very, very special day. Arun Gandhi is the grandson of Mahatma Gandhi. And I'd like to take this occasion to give His Holiness the most profound gift that all of us can give. And that is to invite all of you, those of you who have assembled here today, and those who are listening to this broadcast around the world to pledge today as a birthday gift to His Holiness that we will no longer hate, we will no longer discriminate, we will no longer be greedy, but that we will always respect each other irrespective of their religion, or their philosophical outlook, that we will love and try to bring peace in this world for the future generations. I hope that you will join me in taking this pledge and making it meaningful for His Holiness 
to continue the work of peace for many more years to come. I wish you a long life. Thank you very much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Martin Luther King III is the son of Martin Luther King Jr. If we embrace the teachings of Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., and the Dalai Lama, we can tap the power of the telecommunications revolution to build a global network of mutually supportive people dedicated to nonviolent action for peace and social justice. We must use this revolutionary technology to create a world in which our religious and ethnic differences are respected and valued as vital components of a beautiful mosaic, a mosaic that reveals the best in us all, black and white, red and brown and yellow, Christian and Jew, Muslim, Buddhist and Hindu, and all other faiths and philosophies, East and West. We must travel together as sisters and brothers on a new road, a more hopeful and healing road, a road paved with respect for diversity and undergirded with love, a road reinforced with patience, charted by the principles and practices of nonviolence and leading to world peace. And so in this spirit, I eagerly join in this birthday celebration today, honoring a gigantic spiritual leader whose life and work have embraced that creative psalm of peace. My father envisioned for me your holiness and for your many supporters and followers in Tibet and worldwide. It is also an occasion for giving thanks for the blessings of your life and all that it has meant to so many around the world. Thank you and may God bless you always. And here now, the 14th Dalai Lama of Tibet. I think in reality, more money, more worry, more fear, more distress. <laughs> At high position, more worry, uh, more fear. As a result, more hypocrisy. <laughs> so, uh, real sort of source of happiness is within ourselves. That's we everybody, whether educated, non-educated, uh, rich, poor, uh, believer, non-believer, no differences. We all same. So that's my number one commitment. Uh, and then second commitment, religious harmony. Here also I, I really feel some kind of significance. Uh, the Arun Samare. The grandson, Baba Gandhi, basically Hindu. You, basically Christian. So two persons belongs Hinduism and Christian, Christianity gives greeting to a Buddhist. <laughs> this also is some kind of uh, the significance of religious harmony. We truly have the sense of spiritual brothers, sisters. I very much appreciate. I very much appreciate. There's more on our website from the remarks of Desmond Tutu, Arun Gandhi, Martin Luther King III, and the 14th Dalai Lama. Although this event acted as an example of religious tolerance, through the centuries and still today, a lot of the world's conflict stems from differences in religious beliefs. There's been both conflict between divergent faiths and conflict among sects within a single faith. 
Dr. Kelly James Clark, a professor of philosophy at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan, has written a book exploring the issue. Now, shortly after I, I wrote the book in, in Indonesia, a Christian pastor blasphemed Allah and was sentenced to, I think it was three and a half years in prison. And Muslims thought, well, that's not enough. And they burned to the ground four churches. So we've got, let's see, I guess that's interfaith. And the same week, there was a Muslim group that went to a, a mosque, and the mosque, the members of that mosque held views that they thought were heretical, and they dragged out 20 young men, stripped them naked, and beat them to death. And not just to death, they kept beating their bodies after they were dead for maybe five or ten minutes. And so there you have interfaith um, violence. And it all has to be addressed. Sunnis don't like Shiites. Uh, Historically, Protestants didn't like Catholics. Evangelicals are suspicious of liberals. Um, I mean, there's just no end of ways that people find to exclude the other, so to speak. And it can be others who hold their own faith. Dr. Clark's book is called Abraham's Children, Liberty and Tolerance in an Age of Religious Conflict, from Yale University Press, published in the spring of 2012. It's a book of essays by some of the world's top religious and public affairs leaders who draw from their own faith perspectives to argue for religious tolerance and freedom. Clark also co-chaired a 2011 conference likewise named Liberty and Tolerance in an Age of Religious Conflict. It was hosted by the Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Our Suzanne Kreider talked with Dr. Clark during the conference, and later we'll hear her interviews with three of the conference panelists and contributors to Clark's book. Here again, though, Dr. Kelly James Clark, speaking with Peace Talks Radio's Suzanne Kreider. Where do you find hope? I, you know, I went to Indonesia, and, and every single person I met with, including the leaders of the two biggest Muslim organizations in the world, every single person I met with wanted to work together for peace. And that gives me hope. I think you said, though, in the conference that they said, hey, can you come back another time and bring us all together? And you said, well, why can't you just get together yourselves? What is that? What is it that we need some neutral force or external force to bring people together? I don't know. I I view human beings as really tribal, where we hang around with people like ourselves. And the funny thing is you might think Muslim was a big enough way for people to be like themselves, but no, you got Shiites and, and Sunnis, or you might think Christian is enough to bring people together, but you got Protestants and Catholics and conservatives and liberals and Baptists. and uh, you know, There's just these whole spectrums, and we're suspicious of people that aren't like us. And it, I think it's just built into human beings to be to want to be around people who are like us and, and then to be suspicious of people who aren't. We might think we're all one in Jesus, but it ain't true. We're not one in the Spirit, one in the Lord. We're, we're often divided by our Christian beliefs or by our Muslim beliefs or by our Jewish beliefs, and so sometimes an outside force is needed, I guess. It surprised me, but sometimes an outside force is needed to bring people together. And these are really serious devout, believing people who really want peace. And that group there in in, um, Indonesia, they were all Muslims that I met with. I I didn't meet with Christians, although they they ended up coming to the meeting that we had together. But 
um, but they couldn't get themselves together. And it's not a Muslim problem. Christians have the same problem and Jews have the same problem. Some critics might say, well, why do we have to do this in the arena of faith? Why can't people just get together and work for peace? What fuels your belief that we can use religion as a way to work towards peace? I guess I'm in favor of anything anybody uses to work for peace. So, um, But the reason I think we need to appeal to religion is is that people are religious, and there are lots of religious people. And you just can't ignore. It seems to me a lot of people in the West have ignored the importance of the role of religion. It really animates lots of people's lives. It's the fundamental motivating force in many people's lives. But we in the West have done Western liberal rationalistic defenses of this or that. And they're suspicious of that. And they're rightly suspicious of that outside the West because that's also gone hand in hand with colonialism. It's gone hand in hand with a certain kind of uh, liberal Western value. So there are things they don't value. There are are things they're suspicious of, and, and rightly so. And so if you want to appeal to religious people, Around the world, you have to appeal to what they value. And I decided that I wasn't going to write a book to Muslims, and I wasn't going to write a book to Jews. I was going to enlist Muslims and Jews to write to Muslims and Jews, and they could write a book um, because they it's their people. They understand it. They know what they value. And um, so people are religious. You have to appeal to what appeals to religious people. I got invited to the President's Conference in Israel I went to one of the sessions, and Elliot Abrams was there, a major um, policy figure in the U.S., worked for many different presidents. And then I can't remember whoever, who else was there. They were, wor- they were worldwide leaders, all talking about the future of the Israeli-Palestinian situation. And so they all talked about it. And then I asked a question. I said, well, what role do you think religion plays in this or could play in this? And they all said, I have no idea. And I thought, how, how are you all major policy thinkers? <laughs> Your policy wonks. You, you've been in the Clinton administration and the Bush administration and the Obama administration, and, and you have no idea what role religion plays or could play in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And it's a major cultural flaw. It's a cultural blindness. Uh, to me... It's we should never have gotten into the Iraq war. And the reason we got into the Iraq war is because we did not understand Islam. We didn't appreciate it and we didn't respect it. And we thought we could just go in that our values trumped their values and theirs didn't include Islamic values. So to me, it was a cultural and religious failure on our part. And it, and it led to war and not to peace. I'm talking to you at the Berkeley Center which is at Georgetown University, and you've organized a conference. It's entitled Abraham's Children, Liberty and Tolerance in an Age of Religious Conflict. What's your deepest concern? What motivated you to create this conference? I think, well, there are two things that motivate it. One is um, after 9-11, I began to think that philosophy needs to be a lot more practical. I'm a philosophy professor. We, we think big abstract thoughts and and then we write them down and nobody reads what we write. So, or a few philosophers read what we write. And we, have, we make no difference to the world. Philosophy bakes no bread, as they say. But I was thinking about things, 
in the area of religious liberty and tolerance that I thought could be of use in the world. And so I thought, let's do a book that appeals not to academics. Let's do a book that appeals to basically 18 and 19-year-olds. Um, and why 18 or 19-year-olds? It's a really formative period in, in people's lives. And it's where, for example, uh, a young person might decide to become a suicide bomber or or a young person might decide to become a seeker of justice and peace. It's a really crucial stage for people to decide what kind of person they want to become. The book is divided into three sections, uh, Abraham's Jewish children, Christian children, and Muslim children. And there's a series of, what, 15, 16 different essays. One of them is by President Jimmy Carter. How did you select the people to write the essays? It wasn't all that hard to find Christian contributors because that's my tradition and so those are people I'm pretty aware of and and I was looking for people primarily not primarily who are academics but I was looking for opinion makers I was looking for uh, people that work on the ground for peace a lot of these people are not writers but they have great stories so for example um, Nurit Pellet Elhanan who um, is one of the Jewish contributors. Her daughter was killed in the early 90s by a suicide bomber, and she now works, well, has worked for a group called Parent Circle, and that's Palestinians and Jews who've lost someone in the conflict. But they work together, and they work together for peace. It's a great story. Unfortunately, I couldn't get her to tell it. She doesn't talk about the death of her daughter. But she has a lot of other great things to say. So that's how I, I found out about her. So I can visualize 18 or 19-year-olds reading this book. What's your hope that they're going to take away from it? My biggest hope, I guess, is that they won't become closed-in, fundamentalist, violent, whatever, Christians, Muslims, or Jews, but that they'll find that the God they believe in is the all-merciful God, and that that should move them to peace and not to violence. What about the non-Abrahamic religions? I thought about that because of all the stuff I do in China. It just couldn't be easily incorporated into this book. Uh, and there's a natural linkage of Muslims, Christians, and Jews, because we, sh- we share at least portions of a common book. And so I thought there might be some things that we shared in common, um, I also don't view Buddhists and Hindus as um, they're not the battleground, really, for the next 20 or 30 years of sort of cultural battles. It's Muslims, Christians, and Jews. So I decided just to focus on people of the book, people that shared parts of the same book, and people that might find both some similarities that would be good for them to draw on, but also ones where they'd say, look, we, there are some things we really deeply disagree about, but in our very own traditions, our particular traditions, we find some ways to um, tolerate, respect, and honor you, even though we really deeply disagree. What about agnostics and atheists? Every book that I know of on religious liberty and tolerance is written from an agnostic or atheist perspective. And this is the only book I know of written that's written from a religious perspective. And and the reason I thought this book needed to, to be written is because uh, most people tempted to fundamentalism are not going to read um, 
books that defend a value from an atheist or agnostic perspective. They're going to they're going to be moved by their own tradition. And so we needed books that were tradition specific, that spoke from a tradition, that spoke that comes from where they're coming from. So there are other books for other people. I, I'm not writing to them. I'm writing I, I wanted to put a book that was going to speak to religious people who are tempted to intolerance. And uh, for whom what's authoritative is their holy book. Dr. Kelly James Clark, professor of philosophy at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and author of the book Abraham's Children, Liberty and Tolerance in an Age of Religious Conflict. He was talking with Suzanne Kreider. Next up is a woman who's been battling radical Islamic doctrine since the 1990s, building bridges between Muslim and non-Muslim communities. We'll hear that when Peace Talks Radio continues after this break. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, with all of our episodes going back to 2003, available for you to hear online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and our topic today is the role an embracing of religious liberty and tolerance might have in reducing conflict around the globe. Our guests were in attendance at a 2011 conference on the topic in Washington, D.C. Next, we'll hear from Hedia Miramadi an attorney, author, and founder and president of the World Organization for Resource Development and Education, which works to improve communication between Muslim and non-Muslim communities in order to reduce social conflict and political instability. She also spoke with our Suzanne Kreider. Hedia, how do you define religion? Oh, goodness, I've never thought of that. (laughs) So simplistic and yet so complex. (laughs) How do you define religion? I... I guess it's a it's it's a belief system, a way in which we relate to a higher being or a higher spirit. What I'm wondering about is if there's something inherently exclusive about religions. Well, I'm a Sufi practitioner, so we have a philosophy that religions are basically like boats in the ocean trying to get to the other side of the shore, and it's it doesn't matter what boat you get in, you just get in and you go, and, and you'll get there as long as you try, as long as you're paddling. So uh, I'm not so, in, in my personal, professional, I'm not so concerned about which boat people get into, just the fact that they don't try to overturn the ones next to them. So it's, it, that's really the most important concept is this notion of acceptance. So not just tolerating, uh, enduring and putting up with 
other people, but accepting them and, and looking over at them in the other boat and being like, Hey, how you doing? Are you tired? Or, or are you, are you accomplishing what you need to accomplish? And it, because it has nothing to do with my boat. It has nothing to do with my journey. It is just basically another human being living their life and trying to find their way. Except isn't there a part of many religions that encourages followers to proselytize or to try to gain new members where we are supposed to like drag somebody else's boat over and say hey jump on my boat well well i guess well in islam we do we do have a notion of proselytizing but no compulsion so it's like saying it's like saying that we think we have a nicer boat you know, and saying, well, we have a motor and you're paddling. Don't you want a, a motorized boat instead of a paddle? So it's this notion of of trying to bring people to what we believe is a better product or a better path. But there cannot be compulsion in that. So it's a really fine line between educating people about an alternative and forcing them to accept that alternative. And I think, you know, largely, I don't think it's really a Jewish uh, phenomenon. It's mostly a Christian and Muslims uh, having that understanding that you can preach the word of God and helping to bring people to that word, but you can't shove it down their throat. And, and I think that's important for both our communities to, to be wary of. Edia, what are some resources within the Muslim tradition that can be supportive of tolerance? Oh, goodness. I, I cite to a, a dozen of them in my presentation, whether it's from the Quran and the commandments of God directly about respecting religious diversity and that God did not make all human beings the same. He made us nations and tribes to know each other from the tradition of the Prophet Muhammad himself, creating the Pact of Medina with the Jewish and pagan tribes and giving them equal rights and protection against uh, discrimination and protection in time of war. Uh, to the Sultan of Morocco giving an edit, an edict about protecting the Jewish population and, and their rights to to their artisans to be paid equal wages and for them to be able to participate in civil service. So it's existed throughout history, but unfortunately, it is in the past over a hundred, you know, about a hundred years that this tradition has been slowly undermined by a fringe group of radical Islamists that want to reinterpret and redefine the way Muslims interact with non-Muslims. And so it's the responsibility of the mainstream Muslim community to reclaim the image of Islam, but it's also, uh, we we can't do that without the help of non-Muslims in joining hands with Muslims to try to help them overcome the voice of the extremists and the actions of the extremists and to help also our media portray a positive image of of the good things that some of the Muslim community members do. What about non-Abrahamic faiths? Uh, Actually, I mentioned that in my talk, too, that um, rulers throughout the Muslim empires of the past have included Zoroastrians as people of the book, meaning protected communities, Uh, the Buddhists, the Hindus, the temples of worship were protected. So it's not just protecting people of the book, it's protecting humanity and the importance of us being descendant from one father and one mother, as as Islam believes, and that God created all human beings. And, And I opened actually with a story about uh, Abraham and the Zoroastrian, the fire worshiper who he ate a meal with and insisted that he recite the name of God. And, and the Zoroastrian said, you can't buy my faith with one meal. And uh, Abraham got mad and sent him out. And God said, I, I, I've been feeding this man for 90 years, and I never asked him to take my name. And you insist on him taking my name for one meal. 
go back and bring him back and apologize. So that's, that's what Islam believes. That's the foundation of our concept of religious liberty and religious freedom that the, the people have a right to choose. It seems like so much of interfaith violence is about land. What is that? Yeah, it's about land and politics. What is that about? What can be done about that? I mean, I, I think uh, the perennial conflict between good and evil and greed and, and the desire for material gain, I, I don't think that's going to go away. I think that's part of human nature, that we're all, always uh, trying to conquer the, the desires within ourselves and to exist in a way that's morally and ethical and socially just. So I don't think those those forces are ever going to disappear. I think it's just up to good people and socially just people to make sure that there's a balance and that people protect each other's rights to peaceful coexistence and, and to land and, and representation in their governments. And, and, I, and I think we're, everyone's hoping that the Arab Spring will now bring that to large swaths of the Middle East and to the Muslim people so that they also can experience life in a, in a democratic way and, and have a chance to exist in those ideals as well. Hedia, what one or two action items or just suggestions maybe to reflect on can you offer to our listeners around this really big issue of interfaith tolerance? Get to know your Muslim neighbors, uh, attend a local mosque, find out how you can feed the homeless together, celebrate Thanksgiving together. I, I We're hoping in our International Cultural Center to do a Thanksgiving uh, promotion where we ask people to spend Thanksgiving with people that they don't normally uh, break bread with. I think, again, as I mentioned earlier, the notions of what it means to be American needs to be people of all faiths. And I, I would like to see people reaching beyond their own doors and their own communities to get to know people of other faiths and other traditions. So that's an important action item to me. And uh, to respond to media in a very simple way, when you see an article that you think is truly offensive to people of any faith, uh, send a comment, blog about it, um, Facebook about it, that you know you dislike the article, that it was offensive and it was inappropriate. Write to CNN when you think a piece is inappropriate. And I think if we start to challenge the media to be a little more responsible, they may listen. Hedia Miramati is an attorney, author, and founder and president of the World Organization for Resource Development and Education, which works to improve communication between Muslim and non-Muslim communities in order to reduce social conflict and political instability. Earlier in our program, Dr. Kelly James Clark mentioned the name of Dr. Nurit Pellet El Anan, the Jewish educator who lost her 13-year-old daughter to a Palestinian suicide bombing in Jerusalem. She's working to promote dialogue between Israelis and Palestinians, and she spoke with Suzanne Kreider at the conference. You've used the word heterophobia. Talk about that. What is that? Heterophobia is uh, a phobia from strangers. It's the fear of strangers. And I used it because I think you become racist when you don't know anything about the other, and then you become very afraid, phobic about the other, and then you become hateful and aggressive towards the other. And uh, I believe that in Israel and also in America, people are educated in heterophobia. The other, the horrible other, the Muslim masses, those blacks, those yellows. And it is all a product, really, of, of ignorance. 
of course, of political uh, motivations, but uh, which enhance ignorance and lack of communication, of real communication with the other. And that leads to racism. What do you see as a solution to that? Well, I think the solution, of course, is in education. Because uh, I don't think children are born racist or heterophobic. I'll give you an example. I was on sabbatical in London several times, and I could see... Um, my son's classes, he was in a neighborhood uh, school, and there were many, many children from many countries and faiths and, uh, and nationalities, and every nationality that was represented in the class was studied, and the class went to all the prayer houses of everybody, and they learned the history of everybody, and a little bit about the writings of everybody, about the blessings of everybody. And I never heard any child calling the other or referring to another by this black guy, this Arab guy, this Chinese, I want to go to my Chinese friend. It never happened. They all had uh, first names and that was it. And I was amazed by it because it shows that uh, children normally accept other people. They don't care about differences. And racism is really the product of a very profound, thorough and sophisticated education. So we can do the other way around if we want to. But when do we need to get started on that? Because if children don't have it naturally, at what point do they, do young adults or adults take it on and own it? And what can we do about that? No, I think children are educated in their homes from very, very tender age. Very. To see the other uh, as stereotype, negative stereotypes, we and them, and we are better than them, we are white, they are black, and so on and so forth. Uh, even within the Jewish community in Israel, there's a terrible racism towards Arab Jews, Jews who came from Arab countries, towards Ethiopians, black Ethiopians, for example. Most Ethiopians don't study, don't go to school in their own neighborhoods. They are practically deported every morning in yellow buses to very remote villages and little towns to, to, to first grade. And this is appalling. And uh, so they see it around them. They see it in their own family. I think you have to struggle very hard uh, not to uh, bring it into your home, for example, not to allow racist uh, jokes or uh, all these things. Uh, today, in today's uh, world, I think racism is, 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 the, is the dominating discourse everywhere. So children, uh, children catch up as soon as they can uh, start uh, speaking and understanding. The question is how to revise the progress. More on how to revise the progress with Dr. Nurit Pellet Elanan, language educator at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, after a short break. This is Peace Talks Radio.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Visit us online at peacetalksradio.com to see photos, read partial transcripts, and of course to hear again this and other episodes in our series. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with Suzanne Kreider. Religious liberty and tolerance are complex issues impacted by a variety of factors, including education, politics, and the media. And so on this edition of Peace Talks Radio, we're talking with participants in a 2011 conference that was called Liberty and Tolerance in an Age of Religious Conflict. The conference was hosted by the Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Suzanne Kreider now continues her conversation with one of the conference panelists, Dr. Nurit Palet Elanan, the Jewish educator who lost her 13-year-old daughter to a Palestinian suicide bombing in Jerusalem. That incident inspired her to work for better dialogue and understanding between Israelis and Palestinians. Tell us about your work as an educator. Well, I was a school teacher for many years, and then I uh, went on to be a university teacher. But I teach teachers mostly in the School of Education. My field is educational discourse. Uh, I spent quite uh, many years uh, researching uh, verbal discourse in the class, dialogue in the class, in for uh, native Israelis and for immigrants, because you know in Israel they bring a lot of people from other countries who are supposedly Jewish, but then they are discriminated, and uh, uh, the situation is not is not easy in Israeli schools because nobody takes into account the fact that they are different. Because the Zionist ideology says the minute they step on Israeli land, they become like us. And if they are not, then we are going to make them like us. And this uh, this is a source of a lot of tro- problems and difficulties. So I did that for many years. Uh, and then I started looking into textbooks. And I found a lot of racism in the textbooks. So I wrote a book about it, Palestine and Israeli school books, uh, which really shows you um, verbal and visual representation of Palestinians in Israeli school books, which is uh, appalling. And you can see, uh, studying that, looking at that, you can understand uh, this type of education which prepares uh, Israeli uh, children to be good soldiers, namely to, to be ruthless, aggressive occupiers of Palestine. You can understand a lot when you look at school books and when you look at education uh, as a whole, Palestinians or any other group other than the dominant group that calls itself Western Israelis, it's a very funny mixture, but uh, uh, is not represented in, in education ever. And of course, when children are not represented in the class where they study, they become aliens. And uh, when the neighbors are not represented and there's no contact with the neighbors un- until you are a soldier, um, you can, you can um, infect children's minds with all kinds of racist notions and stereotypes as much as you want. So this is what I'm doing now. I'm a lot into racism, multiculturalism in the Israeli class. What's the solution to that? It seems like we would have to get to the textbook authors. It's not the author so much as those who authorized authorized the books. Because in Israel, for example, uh, textbooks are uh, trade books. It's a private industry. Everyone, anyone can write textbooks, and teachers choose. There's a lot, there's a huge variety of textbooks, but they have to be authorized by the Ministry of Education. 
And in order to be authorized, they have to, be, to have some ideological common ground. And uh, in order to get your book published, you have to say a lot of things about anti-Semitism, about uh, our exclusive rights on the land, etc., etc., not to mention Palestinian suffering, not to show them, um, uh, not to show the, the, the official borders of the state. All the maps are of the greatest promised land, not of the state of Israel. Children in Israel don't even know the borders of the state. So there are a lot of things that they have to abide by. Um, uh, glorify the Zionist project of settlement, etc., uh, etc. Et so if you want to publish a book, that's what you have to do. And uh, every time a right-wing or a more right-wing <laughs> government comes to power, they practically take off the shelves the textbooks that the previous labor uh, government issued. So there is this uh, war of textbooks. You can never s uh, quote a Palestinian scholar unless you can twist his uh, words into you know, our favor. For example, one book uh, that wanted to give Palestinian viewpoint on the refugees problem uh, quoted uh, uh, Walid Khalidi, who is a great scholar here in America, and uh, they were taken off the shelf. So now you have the Palestinian point of view with an Israeli historian and then the Israeli point of view with an Israeli historian. Uh, so all those things uh, are the things that determine uh, the authorization of textbooks, much more than the authors, much, much more. Then it is about who, who's elected. Uh, yes and no, because uh, in Israel, what is called leftist uh, governments are no different. A uh, leftist uh, government would allow to call the Palestinians Palestinians. Usually they are called Israel's Arabs, which is very demeaning. Uh, maybe they would allow to uh, dedicate a chapter to the PLO and the national movement of uh, Palestine, but very sarcastically and very contemptuously. Uh, none of the books issued during left or right governments have a photograph of a living Palestinian person, normal person, always racist icons of the nomad, of the primitive farmer, and so on. So the differences are not that great ideologically. It really does speak to what you said earlier about language, yeah. that it's so much about language. That's how, we, that's how we actually connect with ourselves, right? And then that's how we connect or disconnect with other people. Well, as a linguist, I really think that language... Um, uh, let's say that language receives its meaning in the society, but it also creates meaning in the society. There are many words that are invented for special societies, for special, uh, for example, things that would not be acceptable in other countries are acceptable in Israel. Uh, all the population, and especially the Arabs, are called non-Jews. I don't think that anyone in France would agree that the Jews uh, be called uh, non-French or non-Christians. But in Israel, it passes. For, I'll give you an, another example. When they killed the, the nine people on the flotilla from Turkey, uh, the headlines were, uh, most people there uh, were extreme Islamists, 
And some of them even told the families they wanted to be shaheeds, which means they wanted to kill themselves for uh, to be suicide bombers or so. So the fact that they told the family something and the fact that they were Islamists is enough reason for the Israelis to accept their murder. It wouldn't be accepted in any other place. So you have this dialectical relationships between, uh, I would say, the symbolic, which is the language, and the real, which are the actions that are being performed. Like uh, a friend of my son, who is a soldier in some kind of you know, special unit, said, we only kill the wanted ones. As soon as you mark someone as wanted, you don't have to have a court decree, you don't have to have proof, nothing. They assassinate them and they feel good about it because somebody told them he was wanted. And then they can say, oops, sorry. But it wouldn't be acceptable in other discourses and in other contexts. Nurit, for our listeners who want to be able to take action in their own lives, what are one or two things that you could recommend to them? Regarding the issue of heterophobia. Uh, First of all, I think um, children should be taught to read and listen critically to things which doesn't mean they don't have to, to, to study their books or, or to listen to their teachers, but really to contextualize things, to say this is the document that my government wants me to learn today, and I want to know why. So don't be satisfied with what you're given, but always ask why is it there, why is it there now, and why uh, is it there the way it is? Everything you read, everything you see, everything you listen to. And if you ask these critical questions, you become uh, a bit distanced from the things that, you know, the authorities want to feed you, like war on terror. What is terror exactly? There was a wonderful caricature today that was uh, circulated. Terror is anything that stands between America and oil. But if we get serious, I would say that what is terror? Why don't we call the terrorizing actions of armies terror? So terror is the the reaction of poor, weak people to the huge aggression of big powers. Uh, As an an educator, I would say that. Teach children to, to relate critically to everything. Don't praise them for obedience. Obedience to what? They don't have to obey a president who is corrupt. They don't have to obey uh, governments that are, are known to be corrupt. They don't have to obey war criminals. They don't have to obey uh, walls and, and, and barriers. Uh, I think the main thing that uh, authorities want us to, to, to have is separation lines. So we have to defy this separation line. We have to violate some laws. Not every law is lawful. And uh, I believe this is the core of really teaching critical thinking. Just, Just problematize everything. You know, this very problematize is very fashionable today. But speaking of faith in Judaism, we have it for 3,000 years. The whole essence of the Talmud is about problematizing things. Every chapter in the Talmud ends with the words, and they were in disagreement. (laughs) And whenever someone is presented, they say he was the disciple of this and the opponent of this. 
And uh, I think this is something to, to be learned, really, from, from these uh, very wise sages. Uh, never to take anything for granted and never to believe. You can respect your elders a lot, but obedience and blind obedience is a different thing. And I think we tend to praise our children for obedience, and this is wrong. Don't teach them to be good soldiers. This is the worst thing you can do. Dr. Nurit Pellet Elanan, language educator at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, who's working to promote better dialogue and understanding between Israelis and Palestinians. Finally, we meet Dr. Nick Walterstorff, who is the Noah Porter Professor of Philosophy Emeritus at Yale University. He helped found the Society of Christian Philosophers in 1978, and likewise he's a contributor to Dr. Kelly James Clark's book, Abraham's Children, Liberty and Tolerance in an Age of Religious Conflict. He spoke with Suzanne Kreider. Part of this conference is about identifying resources within each of the Abrahamic traditions. What are the resources within the Christian tradition? So I think one of the basic resources is just that everybody is created in the image of God and is redemptively loved by God, and that gives them worth. That's one of the fundamental resources. What, what Calvin adds, and what other theologians in the tradition add, is that a human being cannot get rid of this relationship to God. There's nothing they can do to sort of undo being in the image of God or undo being redemptively loved by God, even the moral scoundrels. Um, they're moral scoundrels nonetheless, but they're, they're human beings, and consequently there are some things that one just should not do to them. Even to prisoners, there are some things that one should just not do to them, and why not? Because they're human beings. So I think one of the deepest resources for religious tolerance is just this deep theme going back into the Hebrew scriptures and continuing on into the New Testament of being created in the image of God. There are others, but that's, that's certainly one of the dominant resources. What about people who don't believe in God? A person who doesn't believe in God can nonetheless recognize that this human being in front of them has a worth, a dignity, a value that must be honored and not they must not be demeaned and so forth, even though they themselves don't have a way of accounting for this. So I'm a philosopher, and philosophers find themselves all the time in the situation of being convinced that something is the case without being able to give an account of it. So from the fact that somebody can't account for it doesn't mean that they're going to deny the thing. Just struggle struggle longer to account for it. Let's move towards talking about interfaith intolerance. Where does it come from? Is it because religions are just sort of inherently exclusive? My religion has to be different from yours because it's not your religion. Is that where the intolerance comes from? You'll find a lot of people saying that the root of the intolerance is the exclusivism. That's certainly part of it in the case of a lot of people, but I, I think there's something deeper. Um, for some people, religion is not an important thing, but f I suppose for most people who are religious, it's very important. And now you've got somebody in front of you who's also deeply religious, but of a different sort. And it feels hard to find the right one word here, but it feels, they make you feel uncomfortable. It's, it's a kind of critique. It's perforce a kind of critique because they're saying, the other person is saying, my views are correct and you think that your views are correct. So it's, 
is being sort of unnerved by the presence of the other on really important issues. We can, we can handle disagreements on, you know, which kind of cabbage you like better or something like that or what brand of apple is your preference. But, but this strikes deep into the human being. And now this other person is saying, I don't accept your version of it. Um, I, I think that's the root of the intolerance. It, it feels like a critique of me. Some people are that serious, though, about their football teams. Yes, seems true there. Yes, right. <laughs> I'm for my football team. How could you possibly be in favor of that other one? Uh, but why do we take it as a self-critique? It's like, it seems kind of silly. You go to a restaurant, somebody orders a steak, somebody gets the vegetarian plate. Why do we have to take all that personally if people are just different? What's the solution? There is no simple solution. But it seems to me the way forward is to try to come to understand the other human being and to to understand two things. One, to understand them as a human being, somebody with whom you can have dinner or have a conversation or or go to a football game together or something like that, but also to understand their religious convictions. Where are they they coming from? Why do they see it like that and so forth? So attempt to understand them on both those levels, human as your neighbor, friend and so forth, and understand their religion. There are all kinds of blockages to that occurring, of course. Um, We have stereotypes in our minds, and no matter what kind of other religious person shows up, these stereotypes click in, and and, uh, sometimes these discussions result in more hostility than less. It seems like a lot of interfaith intolerance is related to politics. It's all interwound with politics. It's a good question to what extent political conflicts are primarily motivated by the religions in question or whether the religions in question are just getting hijacked by politics. What to do about that? Do one's best to unravel the two, I think, often without success, and do one's best to get the parties to talk with each other and and sort of unravel what's What's, what's the real source of conflict between, you know, I just pick Northern Ireland, the two parties, um, get them to talk with each other. That's, that's what eventually happened. They, they, they finally, well, what, what forced it was they began to say, look, this is, there's too much bloodshed taking place. We just can't continue like this. Um, we've got to do something else. And what, what else are you going to do but start talking to each other and uh, trying to understand each other and how can we live together? Maybe not like each other but live with each other. I went to Catholic school until the fourth grade. And then when we moved, I had to go to a public school. In the second school, kids would come up to me and say, where do you go to church? Because I'd never been to a public school, so kids didn't know where I went to church. And I would say, I'm Catholic. I go to the Catholic church. Where do you go? And they'd say, oh, I'm a Protestant or I'm Episcopalian. I had never even heard those words as a kid. (laughs) And... I think the first kid who told me she was a Protestant, I looked her in the eyes and I said, well, the nuns said you're not going to go to heaven. What do you have to say about that? The nuns were wrong. (laughs) (laughs) How do you know? How do I know? (laughs) I think most nuns nowadays would would agree with the answer I just gave, that uh, they would say, uh, that's, yeah... 
salvation does not depend on being a member of the practicing member of the Catholic Church. But isn't that a big part of it, though? Is that it isn't just like a football team, and it's not just like what you order because at, in a restaurant. It is because you're invested in it. It is a critique, but it's something about. It's not just about our lives on this plane. It's about salvation and being the ultimate winners. Yes, when I said that. Part of it is that we're deeply invested in it. The reason that we're deeply invested in our religion is that there are fundamental issues at stake, as fundamental issues as, as anywhere in human existence. What, Who are we as human beings, and what does our existence as human beings on this earth mean, and what is our destiny? Is it just death, or is there something beyond death? And, and what does it all mean? One cannot ask deeper questions than these. And so the reason that people are invested in it is is that this is the deepest dimension of their existence, of our human existence that we have. And that's, of course, what makes it difficult to tolerate the other, uh, not to mention going beyond tolerating, but really engaging and so forth. But it's what we have to do. What are one or two action steps that you would encourage our listeners to take to promote more interfaith tolerance? I think the most fundamental step we can take is to talk to your neighbors. If American Christians never talk to Muslims, um, then they're going to believe what the media tell them. And the media are going to pick up the frightening features of Islam. It's not news that some imam somewhere is, has a peace project and has kids enrolled in the peace project and so forth. That's not news. What's news is if, if some rabble-rouser imam says some sort of thing. So, so the very nature of the news industry seems to me to encourage um, highlighting the, the frightening features of other people's religion, and indeed the frightening features of one's own religion. And how can you get beyond it but by talking to the people in your neighborhood or in the neighborhood next year is uh, trying to circumvent the media and, 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 the, and the focusing on the alarming, which is, which is what's newsworthy. Dr. Nick Walterstorff. He's the Noah Porter Professor of Philosophy Emeritus at Yale University. You can hear complete versions of all of Suzanne Kreider's interviews with our guests, as well as more remarks from Desmond Tutu, Martin Luther King III, Arun Gandhi, and the 14th Dalai Lama from the 2011 D.C. Kalashakra event, all at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can also hear all the programs in our series going back to 2003. Order CDs of most episodes, sign up for a podcast and our monthly newsletter. And it's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to our nonprofit media organization that produces this program independently from your local public radio station. Please consider a donation. For more frequent updates and inspiration, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Additional support comes from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the FNS Fund of the Santa Fe Community Foundation, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thank you for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Mm-hmm.